0: Welcome to Coffee House. Now forgive me, there is likely to be a lot of background noise because uh, it just got suddenly extremely cold, so (laughs) I'm sorry about that. Also, I most recently, prior to recording this episode as I was producing the notes, I watched... uh, fist fight at Disney that broke out. I'm not sure what the dispute was about, but I, you know, just people slapping each other in Toontown. So I'm not sure how that's going to affect my ability to speak extemporaneously on very complex philosophical ideas, but we are going to see. It is a great day when you get to talk about a Thomas Sowell book. It's Conflict of Visions, a Conflict of Visions that Thomas Sowell published originally in 1987, but was updated in 2007. And as I've said many a time, I think by now, the number one intellectual, the most important intellectual that everybody needs to be studying at this point in the history of civilization is Thomas Sowell. A couple of books of his that we have read, uh, Basic Economics is one that literally every person on Earth should read, and Black Rednecks, White Liberals, is that the name of that? (laughs) Is another one that's just absolutely fascinating, has some great information in it. But this one is A Conflict of Visions. It questions why there is a uniformity in political opposition on so many issues. So when you find somebody's position on one particular issue, it's very likely that they're going to have this whole slate of other issues where they fall on the same on the same side. And for Thomas Sowell, he suggests that this lies in different visions of human nature and terms these different visions, the constrained and unconstrained visions. And suggested that that is kind of the basis for the uniformity in the differences between political groups. So, as always, we will talk about the contents of this book. We're going to do an analysis where we kind of evaluate how good or bad the book is, and then we will do a big picture to tie it into a broader understanding of the world. So, on to the contents. So to just kind of lay it out so we know the broader arc of the whole argument here, we have the unconstrained vision, which is kind of a utopian vision. It suggests that people are essentially good, that there's an ideal solution to every problem, and that compromise is not acceptable, that collateral damage is the price of moving forward toward that utopia... And there are anointed ones who further us al- who are further along the path to this moral perfection and ought to be the harbingers of us getting there. And then there's the constrained vision. This is the tragic vision, which suggests that nature is essentially unchanging and self-interested. Human nature, that is. It prefers the systematic processes like the rule of law and the experience of tradition. It suggests that compromise is essential because there are no ideal solutions, only trade-offs. It favors empirical evidence and time-tested processes, and also asserts that people can't put aside their self-interest. That's always going to be a motivating factor. So in discussing this topic, I mean, he references a whole bunch of intellectuals, you know, there's Godwin, Burke, Mill, Condorcet, Dewey, Adam Smith, Rawls, Lawrence Tribe, although he's kind of a caricature of an intellectual at this point, he's, he's ludicrous, he's ridiculous. But these different intellectuals fall on different sides of this vision dichotomy. So like Adam Smith is kind of representative of the constrained vision. He talks about in The Wealth of Nations how self-interest created this benefit. So people have that self-interest, but it creates a benefit because of the system that's in place. It required people to do things for other people. It relied on incentives rather than on the dispositions of the people who have the ability to do something. It incentivized people to do things for other people. And there's this idea, government requires more experience than any man can gain in his entire lifetime. So if effective government, the proper government, requires far more experience than any man can possibly attain. And Edmund Burke kind of summarized the constrained vision when he wrote of a radical infirmity in all human contrivances. So it's something that is just radically part of us, and there's nothing that we can do about that. So that's why we need a society that takes that into consideration and just has systems that try to produce the best results that you can get, notwithstanding those infirmities. Another one, F.A. Hayek, maintained that a person can have uh, expertise in a certain field, but knowledge on the scale necessary to create society is not possible. And that's what's embodied in our traditions and our habits and our skills and our tools over the course of, of a great period of time and created by that social experience. On the other hand, there are theorists like Godwin who concluded that reason is sufficient for regulating the actions of mankind. So the suggestion is that people are fundamentally generous and magnanimous and that just their ability to reason is something that's sufficient to be able to create a civilization that's going to approach that utopia or achieve that utopia. And you can add Rousseau and Condorcet. Now, I'm speaking in terms of kind of unfairly absolute terms when it comes to the unconstrained idea, the utopian vision. But just keep in mind, there are gradations of this. You know, it's one thing for somebody to say that we can have a perfect society that is utopian. It's another thing to use it as kind of the North Star for theorists like Godwin, who's just saying that reason because man has the ability to reason that we can actually approach that idea of utopia in a way that somebody on the other side, that somebody who's... In a, has a constrained vision would suggest is impossible. Both of the visions are seeking a common good, but they fundamentally disagree on how to achieve that common good. So then he goes through a number of areas that kind of demonstrate the differences between those two visions. So you have, for the unconstrained vision, human rationality can manage pretty much everything. For the constrained vision, people are just not capable of doing that. When it comes to justice, for the unconstrained, they look at the results of what's happening. And for the constrained, they look at just, does everybody have the same rules? Are the rules being applied to everybody in the same way? For the complexity of social processes, for the unconstrained, you have to manage those things. However complex it is, you have to manage those. And for the constrained, it's simply too complex to be able to manage. So you have to put in systems that work the best that they can and deal with the trade-offs that, that are attendant to that. For equality, for the unconstrained, you look at the results, so this is like equity, you look at the result of what, what has happened, and whether people are equal, and for the constrained, you look at the process. Is the process equal, whether you have unequal results or not? However, uh, soul acknowledges that there are varieties and dynamics of visions. It's not just that everything falls on one side or the other. Some hybrid hybrid visions are things like Marxism or utilitarianism. For example, Marxism, it has this idea of a progression from a constrained vision to an unconstrained vision as part of its historical dialectic. You know, it's a a road to the utopianism that you go along. But there are areas where it's kind of backwards, especially most recently we can see examples of this. So like the left in America, in some cases they will be the ones who are saying that things have been done this way for a long time, especially most recently with the abortion debate. They suggested that just because this is something that has been there for a long time, it's one of the major arguments, that it should still be there, whereas the right would say that it's wrong or ineffective and therefore should be done away with, notwithstanding the fact that it was here for 50 years, however long it was there. But so a vision in general is an in- an instinctive sense of how things work. It's something that's uh, much broader than you know other modes of approaching social or political questions. So he specifically contrasts it to something like Hume's Paradigms. So Hume's Paradigms is like a zoomed-in version of a vision, and then you'd get more and more specific after that. But visions themselves come first, and they are more intuitive. But then you have problems, you know, when it comes to responses to evidence. When you have evidence brought to bear that challenges a vision, which is something that's more deeply held and instinctive, then it's very difficult to change your mind. Uh, So you can have road to Damascus moments where you see evidence and change your mind, notwithstanding whatever your vision is, but it's very difficult. He references this one guy, Bert, who falsified, it wasn't like Bert, Bert and Ernie, it was, (laughs) that was the last name, (laughs) Bert. (laughs) He falsified data in support of a particular vision he had of society, and this was only determined, you know, after the fact that he had falsified these things. So the question was, why was he willing to do that? And the explanation is that he had a greater allegiance to that instinctive vision than he had to what was right in front of him. And there are other ways to kind of avoid these conflicts where you can state a theory that may be so broad as to be incapable of being proven wrong. This is, you know, the unfalsifiability idea. And he references, Thomas Sowell references, Malthus and his principles are related to population growth and how, you know, the population is going to grow exponentially and but food won't will grow linearly and and therefore the population is going to outstrip the food and there's going to be widespread famine and death and all that kind of thing. It's something that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, uh, over the course of time, we ha- developed much more efficient means of producing food. So this should have completely torpedoed Malthus's population argument, but it hasn't. It's something that has had its formulation shifted to match what has occurred since then. Even though the theory should have been proven false, the left even most recently has adopted versions of this argument related to overpopulation. Talking about how people need to stop having children because of climate change and... And all that sort of thing. But there is a lot of room for rationalization when it comes to these visions. And we often resort to the visions to recruit allies. You know, We use those as a means to get people to agree with us on particulars uh, just because we get them to adhere to the vision itself. So, uh, I mean, that's pretty much the book. There's obviously a whole lot more in in it with specifics when it comes to defining the two and going through different theorists specifically and exploring different ideas related to this. Uh, But for our purposes, that's a good distillation of what Thomas Hull's argument is in this book. Mm -hmm. So in the analysis, uh, one thing I wanted to point out was something that didn't really fit in the in the broader discussion of the book. But the, he brings up how technological advancement adds disproportionately to the benefit of the poor than the rich. So things like indoor plumbing, it's something that the rich didn't have to deal with. You know, they had attendants who dealt with this kind of thing. Discreetly dis- <laughs> disposing of waste and that kind of thing. But the poor didn't have that. So when there was the advent of indoor plumbing, it's something that disproportionately benefited the poor over the rich. So it's not so simple as to say that there's a mere class distinction between who benefits and who doesn't. So having said that, so the underlying premises in our political positions are very important to point these things out. You know, obviously there are certain ideas that undergird our politics and uh, well, historically, at least I would have thought that everybody was trying to get the, the best for the most amount of people. It doesn't really seem like that anymore, <laughs> but just assuming that still is the case, you know, we are trying to get to, to the common good. That's what we're heading towards. And it is weird that we have such different approaches to that. And it's odd that there are these political clusters, even more so today, wherein you can pull one political idea out of somebody and you can guess with like 99% accuracy all the rest of their political positions. That's not something that should exist. In addition to that, we have demographic trends and the shifting of the Overton window and the ability to cultivate online communities with ideological homogeneity. I mean, you previously had to live in mixed communities intellectually. You had to run into people who thought things differently from you. You could just happen to engage with these people at various community events or at school or whatever else. But now because of demographic trends and because of online communities that you can curate, it's much easier to sequester yourself from outside ideas. And when it comes to the book, dichotomizing isn't necessarily helpful, you know. Yes, I think this has a lot of explanatory power when looking at the premises that are undergirding our political visions. But so what? Like, How do we use that to go forward or have better ideas or get off of these tracks? And one thing about Sol, he is totally respectful to both of kind of the broad visions. He definitely prefers one over the other, especially over the last few decades of his writings. But he gives both of them their due. And obviously he references, you know, a hundred different academics in this area and puts them on both sides. He's not just cherry picking people off of Twitter or something like that uh, to shoot down their arguments. He is giving both sides, both visions, their due in trying to understand, uh, you know, how to approach problems that face the world. So when it comes to big picture, we are kind of in the eye of the Dunning-Kruger storm. <laughs> we have people in general, especially young people, who are more inclined to pretend they're absolutely certain about political issues. Because there's so much pressure to do that. It's like this weird social contagion where people have to exhibit this hostility and be assaultive in their disregard of people who think differently. It's it's like a immune response, you know? <laughs> It's it's something that happens instantly where they have to reject even the possibility that they could be wrong unless there's something else that's tying them to this person or this conversation. But, I mean, history really is a struggle against our infirmities. That's Everything about history is trying to come to terms with the fact that we don't understand enough to not do the things that are very detrimental to us. And, uh, you know, the horizon that we're on right now that we we will all likely get to see at least some of this is the rise of AI and machine learning. And AI might ameliorate our problems or our infirmities, or they might amplify them, you know, or have some mixture of the two, which is the most likely. You can see it all the time just in, you know, the most rudimentary AI that we've had when it comes to just doing basic study or something like that, that has a result that we don't like. If an AI comes out with a result that we don't like socially, then it's much more likely that we're going to adjust it than just abide by it so that we get a result that we don't like. So math doesn't lie, but people who use it certainly do. I think the answer going forward is that humans need to be held to a stricter standard of granularity when it comes to political issues these things are actually extremely complicated and have a a very local character and that's something that we kind of forget easily and i found the more people have to explain and I don't mean in a like confrontational way where you're really challenging somebody or something like that. It can be that, but it also can be just something that you ask them to explain the particulars of a political issue, and the more they're asked reasonable questions, not just like the gotcha questions or whatever, then the less blind allegiance they show. And just just that softening of those edges when it comes to their political vision, I think is enough to get us you know back on the right track just people thinking that okay well maybe i shouldn't pretend to be absolutely certain about this political issue i think that that's enough to kind of hedge our bets against uh, the the sweeping ideologically driven approaches that we're we're trying to take right now so anyway that was a conflict of visions, and that's yet again Thomas Soul. He always has something substantively important and meaningful, and suggests things in a way that I hadn't considered before. He's he's done that with every book we've read of his so far, so this one is no exception. And it was great to read it. And that was Coffee House for today. I hope all is well. Got a bunch of books coming up. And yes, we are going to be plugging in some fiction. It is just really nice to read fiction sometimes, you know. It's like you don't have to really pay attention to all the all the arguments and philosophies and get all up in arms about stuff. You can just kind of enjoy a story, look at the mechanics of the storytelling, spend some time with some characters. It can be nice. But with that said, we will have a whole bunch of nonfiction too. So I hope all is well and I will see you on the next one.